Hey friends, I just want to invite you to consider joining the Theology Nara Patreon community. This is a group of followers who believe in the ministry and work of Theology Nara and want to support it financially. And honestly, I've been so impacted by the people who have chosen to support this podcast. Um, every month they send in a bunch of questions. A lot of them are really personal and I get to spend time responding to them in a private podcast. And we, you know, we'll message each other throughout the month and post responses to each other's questions. I'm actually going to start something new this fall, a monthly live Zoom chat with some of the members. And I'm super looking forward to actually seeing more of their faces every month. And there's other perks to come up, like a free virtual pass to the Theology Nara Exiles in Babylon conference every year. But honestly, I don't want to make it sound transactional. Every single single Patreon member that I've talked to says the same thing. We like all the perks. Uh, we're thankful for them, but we're just more thankful to support the ministry of theology in the raw. And we're glad to do so. So if this is you, if you've been impacted by theology in the raw, you can join the theology in the raw community for a minimum of five bucks a month by going to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. The link is in the show notes. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Sheena Mason. Uh, Dr. Mason earned her PhD in English literature with distinction from Howard University, and she's currently on the faculty as assistant professor of African-American literature at the State University of New York. And she recently released her book, Theory of Racelessness, a, a Case for Philosophies of Anti-Racism. The, the spelling there is actually really important. So you have to go check it out. It just released uh, a couple months ago. And uh, I came across uh, Sheena through a mutual friend and was intrigued by this idea of racelessness. We all know, or most of us know that race is not a, should not be considered a biological uh, category, but most of us would say, but it is a social construct. Well, Sheena disagrees with both of those ideas and she is incredibly thoughtful and brilliant. And this entire podcast was devoted to kind of unpacking her theory of racelessness. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Sheena Mason. Thank you, Sheena, for coming on the podcast. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Uh, get, just tell us a brief snapshot of, of who you are and how you, I, I'm, you know, you're obviously an academic. I saw your CV. You publish a lot of, I mean, popular level stuff, but also some very academic kind of things. So tell us about your journey and how you fell into kind of a more academic field. Sure. That, um, thinking of myself as an academic makes me giggle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because it means so many things to different people. Um, but how I how I got here. So I have always had a love for literature and education, broadly speaking. I grew up in a very abusive household and I turned to school and reading in particular um, as a sort of safe spaces and safe havens. And it was through literature that I discovered that the world was vaster than I had yet experienced. And by the time I got to be an undergraduate, I felt drawn to African-American literature in particular because the body of literature has always been defined as having to do with struggle and mm -hmm. being a sort of response to struggle and also striving to end certain struggles, especially as it pertains to racism. 
Mm-hmm. And so I felt really connected to that because of the struggles that I had been through in my own life. And I had experienced explicit racism throughout my childhood. I felt that God's purpose for me was to do something greater and that I was destined to turn my mess into a message, if you will. Um, And I immersed myself into the study of African-American literature, which meant that I studied everything race and racism. By the time I got to be a PhD student, I found myself falling into a sort of full-blown skepticism as it pertains to race that makes perfect sense how I actually got there intellectually and even emotionally and spiritually, um, given my background as an undergraduate where I was very skeptical of this idea of authenticity or representation, this idea that there is a way to be Black, for example. Uh, because I, that defied reality. <laughs> like, I, you know, I was a person who was racialized as Black. I know a lot of people who are racialized as Black, and no one ever fit into the avatar of what Black was supposed to be. So what is that thing? And that led me to my signature theory of racistness, a sort of recognition that through the through my study of the literature and the attending history, To undo racism, we have to undo our belief in race. And um, it hasn't been an easy journey. It's actually been a very challenging journey, even for myself. And Kimmy and I, when we first had a couple conversations about it, she at first also didn't understand. So she's going through her own journey of exploration and discovery. But I find that it's a necessary journey and I'm just doing everything I can to spread the word and share information with as many people as possible. Well, thank you. That's a great uh, summary. So I already I've got tons of questions. I, I think, you know, I, I've read, so, I've watched some videos where you unpack the theory of racelessness. Can you unpack it for us here for people that are like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? What do you mean they're racelessness? Sure. What does that even mean? So give us the elevator pitch to your theory. The elevator pitch. Well, so... no, the, a longer version of it. I don't, I don't want to cut you short. I mean, it's, 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 it's complex, you know, I mean, it's not. <laughs> yeah, that's that'll forever be my pain point is like, how can I make something that really is complex and vast into a sort of elevator pitch? But the short answer is that the theory of racistness is a framework. It is a way for us to talk about, think about, interpret, analyze all things race and racism. But when I say it's a framework, there are rules <laughs> and there are tools to the theory that help people explore um the conversation as it pertains to racism and solution make and future make in a way that helps more people stop unintentionally upholding the same thing they're working to dismantle and critique. The rules of the theory are as follows. Race does not exist in nature. I agree with modern scientists that race is not biological. Race does not exist as a social construction. This is one of the harder tenets for people to grapple with. That's the most provocative one for me right there. (laughs) Absolutely. The the first one I'm on board with. The second one, I was like, whoa, I haven't heard that before. (laughs) So I'll put a pin in that one. I'm sure we'll come back and I can explain more. That leads us to the third tenet, which is that everyone is raceless. Racism includes the belief in race and the actor practice of racialization. And racism is not everywhere, nor is it the cause for every perceived negative interaction or disparity. Finally, racism can be overcome. Mm -hmm. So I find that when people operate from these tenets as it pertains to their study analysis or discussion of, of race and racism, 
it leads us into more fruitful territory, um, namely because it helps people stop the cause of racism in its tracks, as well as some of the un un unintended effects of racism. And long-term, if we think about what does it look like for American society, for example, to unify, reconcile, and heal, I view the theory of racistness as a necessary strategy for people to, to bring that to themselves and to then offer that gift to other people. Because as we've been doing what could be called anti-racism, we've been doing it in a way that has unfortunately um, ensured that we continue uh, the problem of racism. So would you say your theory is, is it, I want to, I just, and if I use language wrongly, please correct me. Um, sometimes I, my questions come out in a way that's worded in a way it's not right, but is, is your, would you say your theory is directly trying to counter or offer an alternative to, and I think Abraham, Abram Kendi coined anti-racism. Is it his work or that idea of anti-racism as a, as a thing that you're directly trying to counter or is it, is that not really kind of what you have in the background of what you're addressing? Well, I feel like the answer is not so straightforward because my first inclination is to say, no, I've been studying race and racism for 20 years okay. before Ibram X. Kendi was even a thing. And so my signature theory came into development before how to be an anti-racist, right? Okay. So if it precedes um, his work, then I don't view it as a counter. Okay, And yet, it's my study of race and racism, and we could call every we could call every action against racism anti-racism. I think that's fine. It's a newer coinage, it's a newer term, but the fight against racism isn't new, right? You had abolitionism during slavery, right. you had people fighting against Jim Crow, you had the civil rights movement, etc. I view all of those efforts and movements as anti-racist efforts and movements. And I'm certainly countering how this how people have employed strategies against racism from each step. Can you give us an example? The belief in race was something that we inherited because Europeans wanted to justify the class system that they had on the ground. Chattel slavery was already in existence. And at the time, there are a lot of scholars who, who focus specifically on American slavery. And they say that people generally did not have these beliefs in superiority and inferiority at that time. Time. They did not look at people of African descent and think, hmm, these people are less than and so they deserve to be enslaved. That type of thinking and the, the racialization, the, the description of black and the description of white, those things came into being after chattel slavery was already centuries in the making. Hmm. And it was it came into being because they saw the necessity of trying to justify and maintain the economic and social class systems that already existed. Well, how do you do that? Well, you build it into the system, you build it into the government, the media campaigns, education system, that these people are inferior and these people are superior, and here's why. And as such, when you have abolitionists like Frederick Douglass rolling around in the 1800s fighting against slavery, He's asserting his being as a black man, and yet he only thinks he's a black man because he's told by his society that he is a black man. And other so 
called Black people are enslaved because they are inferior. And so-called white people are no longer enslaved or in indentured servitude because they're 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 superior. Mm-hmm. And so the concept w- by design was to dehumanize people of more recent African descent. And if you're able to successfully dehumanize any people, mm-hmm. then it follows that anyone who comes in future generations and inherits that way of that worldview, that way of seeing oneself and seeing other people is then going to unintentionally carry on the, the dehumanization that comes with the language that comes with the very concept. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, while I understand and recognize how Frederick Douglass asserts his blackness, right. How he takes blackness and he works to write his humanity into it mm-hmm. and render his his humanity visible to every person, including the slave owners, I see the irony of that project, right? And I see how it has ensured that we continue to fall short in terms of where we could be along the lines of unification and healing and reconciliation. And the reason why we continue to be in this quagmire primarily is because We've inherited these belief systems. And even as people question the belief systems, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X later, Ibram X. Kendi, Black Lives Matter, people are constantly questioning the belief system. And yet we're doing it from within the belief system. Right? And we're, we're giving credence to that way of color coding human beings that then leads to the unintentional continued dehumanization of those same human beings and what what does that what does that mean and what does that mean for our future if we continued along those lines it's funny you say that so i read kendy's book um how to be an anti-racist maybe i'm gonna maybe a year ago and exactly what you said now and and you're (laughs) you're an expert in this conversation way smarter than me so it's really helpful for me to hear you say because that that's exactly kind of the thought that I had when I was reading it because he did he he did dismantle if I remember I forget how but you know he he said everything you said about race this is a a a, a construct I mean okay so you're gonna push back at even the social contract but he said it's a social construct created by Europeans to classify and dehumanize African Americans um and and like okay so why are we still using it and then he then he went on to say and again I don't I I don't I would have to go back and read it but he's I think he said something like, but this is still the categories in use today or something. So we still have to address those categories or how they're been abused or something. I don't know. He still, it seemed ironic. It seemed counterintuitive how he is still using the same categories he said are oppressive intrinsically. But it's like, I'm like, why not just do away with the categories then? I don't remember yeah. what he, exactly what he said in, to address that, but I didn't, I wasn't convinced when he kind of, wiggled out of it i was like that doesn't seem to make as much sense to me but i don't know yeah am i I representing i don't maybe i don't know if you're familiar with how he treated that or yeah no i see the same irony especially because in his first book stamped from the beginning he makes the entire case for what i'm talking about but then he like doubles down on keeping race ideology so there's there are a couple of reasons why this continues to happen there are six philosophies of race that we each hold two of 
but we get defaulted into those two positions and we seldom hear about the philosophies of race that underpin the theory. Hmm. So the Kendis of the world oftentimes don't even know that philosophy of race is an actual thing. Hmm. Um, and I think it's to the detriment of our human society. And that's also why I believe that people should know about it. So let me tell you about the philosophies of race. Okay. <laughs> so there are three philosophies that speak to what a person thinks race is and three that speak to what a person thinks should be done with race. The first philosophy is something called naturalism. Naturalists believe that race is biological. Then there's constructionism. Constructionists believe that race is a social construction. It is not biological, but it's a, it's a man-made real phenomenon. Kendi fits into the social constructionist realm. The further back you go, the more naturalists you find, but there are still plenty of race naturalists nowadays. Okay. The third category that speaks to what a person thinks race is that is seldom heard of, often misunderstood and misconstrued is something called skepticism. And this is where I lie and thereby the, the fruits of my mind, the theory of racistness is, a, is coming from a skeptical place. Skeptics argue that race is not real biologically, nor is it real as a construction. And part of the problem for why it's challenging for people to grapple with what's the difference between skepticism and constructionism mm -hmm. is because a lot of people misunderstand what it is to say something is a social construction. Okay. Constructionists tend to say things like race isn't real. It was made by man, <laughs> just illustrated by the by the, your paraphrasing of Kendi. Okay, but that's still saying it's real because if it's made by man, you're still talking about a real phenomenon. You're just acknowledging it's not biologically real. As a constructionist, I say it's not real at all. There's an illusion of race that people believe in, but as a skeptic, that doesn't make it real for me. My skepticism is rooted in my ability to translate race every single time it appears into something else, into culture, ethnicity, social or economic class, or racism itself. So to my mind, racism is a social construction, as Toni Morrison once said. Race is a fiction. It is not a social construction. It's not real. And just because people believe it's real doesn't make it make it real. And an analogy that your listeners might resonate with, but so, sort of from an opposite perspective, if I am an atheist, I disbelieve in the existence of a deity. I know as an atheist that religion exists, right? I know that there are plenty of people who organize their entire calendar years around religious traditions, right? Practices, holidays, et cetera, rituals and beliefs. But as an atheist, that doesn't make a deity real for me, right? Because I disbelieve in the realness of the thing itself. And just because people believe doesn't make it real. Mm -hmm. Another example um, that Barbara and Karen Fields give in racecraft is witchcraft. Mm -hmm. People believed in the existence of witches. They persecuted. They literally burned people at the stakes, accusing them of being witches. Uh, but that didn't make witches real, <laughs> Right. To, to most people's minds, that doesn't make witches real. So in the same way, my theory invites people to step into a skeptical position of race 
to better recognize the differences between a social construction and something that is truly not real and to translate culture and ethnicity, class and racism itself appropriately and to stop mistranslating all of those things into race or evidence of race. Because that's what also inspires the the sort of Kendian way of thinking. That's that inspires the need or desire to keep race because you mm-hmm. see it as conflated with all of these other things which have meaningful impacts on humans. The last three categories or philosophies of race that speak to what a person thinks should be done with race. We get defaulted into a reconstructionist position. Reconstructionists argue that race, the concept of race, should be reconstructed. Kendi is a reconstructionist. Frederick Douglass was a reconstructionist. Martin Luther King Jr., reconstructionist. All along the way, we've been programmed, really, to be reconstructionists about race. It's the idea that we can refashion it into something that inflicts less violence on the people. We can make it be more positive than what it was initially intended to be. We can write humanity into the meanings of the meaning of blackness in the in the context of the states. Then there's something called conservationism. That's as it sounds. I want to keep the belief in race or the concept of race. Conservationists are more likely than not naturalists. After all, what can you do with nature except keeper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, reconstructionists are more often than not constructionists. And the last category and the the last one that rounds out the theory of racistness is something called eliminativism. This is something you will almost never hear about. Can you say that again? The the word? Yes. Eliminativism. Eliminate. Okay. Eliminativists argue that the concept of race or the belief in race should be thrown into the dustbins of forgotten history (laughs) for a variety of reasons. It doesn't even have to be as serious as my reasoning, but for a variety of reasons. Some people say race is undefinable, right? Like there's no human society that actually agrees what race is. So it's a sort of useless category. Uh, We could throw it away. My contention though is because Everything that people point to and say that's race or that's racial, because those things are actually something else, and because racism is hiding its face as race, that's the reason why we need to eliminate our belief in race, because we're allowing the violence of of racism to continue. And for many people, it's unintentional, which I think makes it more nefarious. And so skeptical eliminativism is a thing. But one can also be a constructionist eliminativist. It just tends to be, I think, rarer because, again, it's hard for constructionists to really get their heads around eliminating something that they believe is still real. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you can be skeptical about race, it seems actually a lot easier to agree that, yeah, it's something we should throw in the trash. What? Okay, so I, this, this is super helpful. And it. I feel like I understand did it for the most part when I watched you present it online. And now this is actually even clearer. So this is really helpful for me. I'm I'm trying to play around with the, I, I love the analogy of like an atheist who doesn't believe God is real. And yet religion would still be, you would say like in that analogy, religion would be a legitimate social construct, right? Even though the thing that they are constructed around 
let's just say for the sake of it, our atheist friends or, or is not real, but religion could be a legitimate social construct to the extent to where it's so embedded in our society that you can't have a theory of like religionless or whatever. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Correct. I'm just trying to think of a, a possible pushback that somebody could. Well, be, well, the, 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 that's a great um, illustration of what I'm pointing to. Right. Because the difference is an atheist would readily recognize the reality of religion, as you said, yeah. as a yeah. social construct. They would not recognize the reality of a God okay. because of the reality of the religion. So if we if, if some of my supporters have um, dubbed the term race atheist, <laughs> so um, if you are a race atheist, then you recognize the reality of racism, the religion of racism. And people who know my work know that I spell racism with the word race in it. OK, you would not recognize the reality of race as a result of the reality of racism. And I think that's a really important distinction to draw out, too, because some people hear racelessness, the word, and because of how it's been um, misused, I think, up to this point, they think or presume that I'm saying racism isn't real or racism doesn't exist, right? I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is that racism is different from what we think it is. And therefore, to solve the problem, we have to do something different from what we've been doing, which is trying to reconstruct it into oblivion. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love that. I love that that got teased out because I have to remember it for future conversations. Uh, an yeah. atheist would recognize the reality of religion, the, even the importance of it. Right. And some downsides of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that doesn't make what religion is organized around real for an atheist. So, so, so to tease out the analogy, race stands in for kind of deity racism for the religion. So you would recognize that the religion slash racism is a social construct. And that is very a real thing people, but it's oriented around something that's not real, namely race. Amen. Just as religion Bring is oriented to around the deity. That, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes 100 are, are you i i don't even know are you religious are you a believer christian or not or agnostic or no, it doesn't matter for the sake of this podcast <laughs> i'm curious I'm, you, I'm christian you, used, you said something about god in the in your testimony so i wasn't sure i'm christian okay my my beliefs are complicated though i grew up okay. roman catholic i went through a period of am i agnostic am i atheist uh, but my belief in something greater than myself was too strong. And it was something that I couldn't mm. uh, dismiss. So I, I, I call that God, right? Okay. But my conception of of who or what God is or how God is, is going to be different from, I'm sure, many of uh, many other Christians. Okay. I, I love that behind you. you <laughs> I want to believe. A picture of a UFO, the words, I want to believe. As <laughs> Do you know what that's from? I, I, it looks familiar. We're, we're... <laughs> the X-Files. Mulder, oh, right. Mulder has it in his office and I'm obsessed with X-Files. And then I think it's hilarious because of my skepticism. So, <laughs> Are you a Gen Xer? X-Files, that's the... I, I think so, yeah. I think Gen X is my generation. I okay. always have to look it up to see, or no, maybe I'm a millennial. 
Honestly, I don't remember. I, I always have to look it up to see the difference. It's getting easier that I think millennial is like under 40 is kind of the broad. There it is. Yes, I'm a yeah. millennial. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's a good way um, to think about it. I, I'm curious, who, who are some of, as you were developing this theory, who are some of the forerunners to it? Even, you know, mm. you said you, you started reading lots of African-American literature. Were there some older thinkers that planted the seed for this? Um, and, and maybe even some <laughs> contemporary thinkers that you would say, yeah, I, I really draw on these these thinkers? Or You know what's really funny to me about this aspect of the conversation? I wish I had been exposed to thinkers who um, would have unlocked the keys for me <laughs> a little faster or in a more perhaps straightforward way. But it was like only recently at the end of my dissertation and even increasingly after my dissertation, as I started doing the work, people were like, oh, have you heard of this writer and this writer? And I was like, oh, oh my God, where were these people when I was actually in it? But yeah, it's the the most interesting part and perhaps the most um, compelling aspect of this is I started to see these philosophies and I started to see the tenets of my theory in in the literature that other people had always interpreted um, as saying something else, as saying something close, more closely aligned with mm -hmm. uh, critical race theory or, or candy or mm -hmm. uh, black feminism, etc. And it was like, my brain just, just, picked up on the codes of the of the text and the history in ways that because I did it for such a sustained period of time mm -hmm. and because I was open to whatever possibilities were going to be shown I always just had a different way of interpreting what I read and um, because I didn't run away from that difference and because I embraced it and I was always open to proving myself wrong and and learning constantly, the theory became clearer. And okay. I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to um, Jacoby Carter at Howard University, the chair of the philosophy department. As I was progressing through my Ph.D. program, I got connected with him and he taught me philosophies of race and I learned that he was a constructionist eliminativist uh, and that's when I learned that at that time I was a constructionist eliminativist he has been invaluable and I just wish I had known him for longer because I probably would have had some less less struggles against my own mind I was like Smeagol and Lord of the Rings talking to myself <laughs> at times um, but once I met him it became easier and the floodgates have opened. And now, now I, I'm reading, um, actually, there's this, oh, you would actually probably really find this book interesting. It's a book called Racisms from the Crusades to the 20th Century huh. by Francisco Bethencourt. Oh, I've heard the name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's not even a new publication. It's like 2015, but I'm excited to read it because I like how it's racism's plural because I think one problem of racialist ideology in our society includes the fact that we tend to, because we racialize everything in the ways that we do, we look at the rest of the world and we just like indiscriminately racialize everything and indiscriminately see what's called anti-blackness or white supremacy everywhere. And it's just not what it is. Once you once you know about race and racism and philosophies, it's just not what it is. Hmm. So I'm I'm excited to read that book. 
Um, Jacoby Carter's work himself has been invaluable and his mentor is Leonard Harris. And he's the one I quoted actually at the beginning when I said, throw race into the dustbins of forgotten history. Um, he's a skeptical eliminativist, a philosopher at Purdue. In terms of, of really interesting figures to study, so some people will be familiar with Thomas Sowell. Admittedly, I haven't read any of his work, but I became aware of him because of the work that I do. Mm-hmm. George Schuyler is another really interesting figure. Um, there's a collection of essays called Racing to the Right with the word race in it. His ideas on race predate mine 100 plus years. He was definitely a skeptical eliminativist, and he was definitely very radical in his thinking for his time. Okay. And Elaine Locke is the other person I want to plug, Elaine Locke. Okay. But my book is probably the best bibliography there, right? My okay. first book, anyone I mention, it's really presenting a sort of journey of racelessness through mm-hmm. African-American literature across a generation. So that's another really good resource. I should have asked this earlier, but, you know, there's the whole idea of colorblindness. People saying, mm-hmm. I don't see color, you know, everybody's just human, whatever. And that's pretty frowned upon to, to say that today. Would And I, I I wanted to bring this up earlier. I totally forgot because when people hear racelessness, I would assume a lot of people listening are thinking, oh, is she just advocating for colorblindness? Is that, can you explain the similarities and differences there? And I have no clue what you're going to say. So I don't even know if I'm framing that right. <laughs> yeah. So this is the most asked question that I get. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you're asking. <laughs> So, uh, and it needs to be addressed. So a couple of things. Firstly, some people find colorblindness problematic because sometimes with colorblindness, there has been a history of denying the problem of racism, Okay, right? Which I've said from the outset is not what I'm doing. How can I be working to resolve racism if I believe that racism doesn't exist? So there's that. So I'm addressing racism full on. And in fact, I'm offering people a toolkit to actually start solving racism and healing from it as opposed to continuing it and suffering from it or causing other people to suffer from it. But then there's also this belief that that underpins colorblindness. If we can step away from the the criticism of colorblindness denies the reality of racism. A lot of very well-intended people aspire to be colorblind because they think that I can see your race, right? I can see it through your phenotype, how you look. I can tra- I can see it, which means I can translate how you look into your race and I can then ignore it and just treat you like a good human being. But my theory is intervening into this belief that there's something I can translate about you that tells me what your race is. Uh, Because if I'm pointing to the unreality of race, there then is nothing I can translate about you that would tell me what your race is, because race is is a fiction, it's a mythology. And so part of why I think colorblindness as a strategy fails includes the fact that it's this it's a different side of the same racialist ideological coin right it's still believing in race still continuing the belief in race by mm-hmm. having it infused in our education system in our media in our government every time you go to a doctor every time you start a new school you got to check the box of race it's still upholding that which for me is how racism is systemic and it doesn't it's unsuccessful because 
even the most well-intended, good-hearted people fall into the trap of believing in race, which carries with it automatically some type of hierarchy. And we cannot run away from the hierarchy, and we can certainly do our best to have these biases in our in the back of our minds, but still treat people fairly. But um, even the best of us, right, we still suffer from these biases. And sometimes it's a, a personal suffering. Sometimes it's not even something that we inflict on other people. Sometimes it's just how we see ourselves in relationship with other people. The theory is working to disrupt all of that and to help people stop thinking that they can see race because then we start to understand what race is. Race is the dehumanization process, period. And in every society where racialization happens or ethnicization happens, it's always bad, Hmm. right? The Nazis did it to the Jews um, in Rwanda the Hutus, Tutsis, and Tiwas. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about Rwandan genocide. Every society where racialization happens, where people are created to be the other and and race is part of that way of thinking, uh, the hierarchy is carried with it and it's imposed. So colorblindness falls short in those ways. And I would like to invite um, any listeners who up until this point, have embraced a sort of colorblind ethos to step into the theory of racistness because it it provides a sort of liberation that colorblindness doesn't. And so long as we continue to believe in race, even if we work to treat people fairly, people will still suffer because of the belief in race and the practice of racialization. Hmm. So we really should, we should intervene. So even the concept of colorblindness is still giving life to race as a thing. Even as it tries to deny that it has affected them, it's still acknowledging that it's real. That's right. They're they're you can't be blind to something that's not real, otherwise, you know, but so they're they're still giving life to that concept. Okay. That makes that's that makes right. Sense. Yeah. And missing would, and yeah. missing the entire point of what race is, you know, skin color is not race, even if that's what people think can tell you what race is. That's not what race is. Race, as I'm talking about it, the thing that needs to be undone in terms of our belief system is dehumanization. That's it. And you can't see dehumanization, right? But you can enact it. That's a good piece of clarity for people that maybe aren't even on board with race isn't biological. And I think there's some listeners that very innocently, it's not like they're, they're just like, wait a minute, what do you mean race doesn't exist? There's black people, there's Asian people, there's white people. Like it's, how can you say we don't exist or whatever, but you're, you're using race as how it was originally used to organize people and oppress people and dehumanize people based on their uh, skin color or based on their ethnicity or both. And what would be skin color? It's kind of all there and above. It's not, it wasn't even skin color. And I argue it's still not skin color. I argue that in the U S a lot of ideas about race still are rooted in ancestry. You know, the one drop rule, Americans believe really strongly in that um, to where people are expected to announce their race if they look one way, Mm. but if internally they have black blood, right? In quotation marks. I mean, if you know about American slavery, then you know that a person's blackness was calculated 
folks like Thomas Jefferson tried to calculate to see at what point does a person stop being black and become white. Um, And, and the reason for those kinds of pseudo, that kind of pseudoscientific thinking was they wanted to, to know when a person was rightfully enslaved. And if you were black because of the one drop rule, then you were rightfully in your place as a slave. And um, if you were, if there if there was a possibility that at any point a generation could be white because of enough white ancestors, then they wouldn't want that person to be enslaved because that would disrupt the whole the whole point of of racialist ideology. So, in our society, I just think it's also more complicated because ancestry has a lot to do with it, even for constructionists, which is also why. I invite people into skepticism because people will say it's a construction all day, but they'll decide your race depending on who your parents are, right? Uh, And how your parents are racialized. Yeah, man, it's a quagmire (laughs) that we have not successfully been able to get out because it's so, the belief system is so entrenched and people believe in the biological reality of race because in our school systems, we teach young people that there are five biological races. We still do this. And then at some age, maybe high school, maybe undergraduate, then we start to change the language and say, oh, race is a social construction. And nobody ever goes along to undo the science that they were taught with science in elementary school and onward. And so when you start to have conversations with undergraduates and ask them, like, how is it a social construction? What does it mean? What is race? then you find that they're actually biological realists about race. Mm. And that makes it that infinitely harder to help more people see the, the need for eliminativism because they really believe it's biological, even as they call it a construction. Yeah. And in my first book, I say it's one of the shortcomings of, of being defaulted into these philosophies because we don't do enough work to help people really understand and grapple with what's mm. happening. I'm curious, as a fellow academic, how, how did your dissertation defense go? Where, where uh, you did your PhD? Was it at Howard? Or I know you yeah. went to Howard. Okay, mm-hmm. were people like skeptical, pushing back, or did you gain some followers during your defense? Or how, how did how did that go? Well, of course, my committee was a hundred percent supportive, and I mean they're the primary people whose opinions matter at, at the defense. And anyone who came was a staunch supporter of me so even if they didn't know um like what my dissertation was or anything they had some idea of the difference of my way of thinking so they weren't shocked right it was virtual that was kind of a bummer because of the of the pandemic and so there definitely weren't random people that didn't know me right and just had no idea what they were in for there um And I passed with distinction, which I think speaks to not just the strength of my work, but also the strength of the support that my committee had for for my work. And we're talking about leading scholars, both in African-American literary studies and in uh, comparative studies and in philosophy. And to pass with distinction, I had committee members tell me, you know, in their decades of working at Howard, they hadn't been on a committee where anyone earned a disti- a with distinction. So it happens very infrequently for anyone who de- who isn't familiar with that. And it's something like less than 1% globally of PhDs in the humanities that earn with distinction. Wow. 
So, you know, not to toot my own horn, but um, <laughs> the strength of my scholarship speaks for itself. And people who read the, the my first book, Theory of Racistness, will hopefully see that and, you know, find the evidence there. I think the fact that I earned it from Howard also should say something to people. I don't know what it should say to people, but it should say something because it's funny. The presumption is, oh my gosh, and HBCU, they're definitely not going to agree or or co-sign this or anything like that, but it's like the exact opposite. So what does that tell you, huh. listeners? What does that tell you? <laughs> that that was, yeah, when I read the theory as you presented it and then I saw you went to Howard. Yeah, I, I had the same assumption. I don't, I don't, I know very little about Howard, but I had this maybe assumption that they were maybe largely, you know, Kendi disciples or, or have a more, I don't even know what to brand it, but just kind of the, the kind of mainstream approaches to race and yours didn't seem mainstream at all. And so I was wondering, wow, that's interesting, but you're saying there's, there's a lot more diversity of thought regarding race at Howard university. And I mean, I'm sure many other places. Um, yeah, that's that's part of um, racialist ideologies. It makes it it washes over and homogenizes hmm. people based on um, how they are racialized <clears throat> in ways that reality belies. And that's one just one reason why when I started my study of African-American literature in particular as an undergraduate and I was studying this idea of authenticity and representation, I came across um, not just a plethora of different voices within a body of literature that's often interpreted in ways that seem homogenous on the surface, mm -hmm. um, but I experienced it real time at Howard University where people don't think the same, you know? Um, yeah. And even if people still had questions, because mind you, that was at a very early stage of my development of my theory. My learning curve in the last year has been fast. Um, so I've continued to develop it and develop my language and be more precise. But even at those early stages, and even people would disagree with my conclusions, what they couldn't disagree with was my evidence and was was how I painted by the story right i think that speaks to the um the integrity of my dissertation committee and the faculty broadly speaking because i don't know i mean i'm sure there are horror stories out there well actually people have told me like oh i i study x and my dissertation committee wouldn't let me write about racelessness at all and i was like oh you know what i'm saying so there are plenty of institutions that would put a block right and try to get you to to do things their way but fortunately that was not my experience and i have nothing but love and admiration and respect for my mentors who i'm still close with and who i still learn from they say they learn stuff from me but th that remains to be seen we'll, <laughs> we'll see I, I'm, I'm curious i hate even ask this question because i fundamentally don't even agree with the premise <laughs> but i <laughs> The, the race conversation has become so politicized so that you have, for lack of better terms, I don't know. Well, we've already said, you know, Kendi on, on the kind of the far left and, oh, who should we put on the far right? Maybe Candace Owens or something, you know, like um, 
does your theory fit? And, and the reason why I don't even like asking the question is because I don't, I don't even like those that that bind those that 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 spectrum we're all supposed to line up on. You know, like when people say, "Are you left or you're right?" I say, "I'm green." I'm like I don't, I don't even recognize those categories as like the options. Like, what are you even asking me? You know, that that, that that's just so prevalent in in how politicized the race conversation is. Assuming just for a second some legitimacy to that political spectrum, does your theory put, sit anywhere on there, or is it just so contrarian that it's just not? You can't put it on the left, right, middle perspective. Um, does that make sense? By yeah, question? that's a great yeah. question. The theory itself is nonpartisan. In the work I do through my consulting firm, theory of racelessness is not is staunchly nonpartisan, necessarily so because I think any anything that someone is offering humanity, and this is my this is my own bias. <laughs> um, it shouldn't be political and it shouldn't be about politics to my mind. Yeah. So I, I sort of indiscriminately criticize any, anyone's ideas, regardless of their politics, as it pertains, especially as it pertains to racism and okay. those conversations, because by my analysis, just about everyone is getting it wrong. Right. Um, I talked with my student. I talked with my students about um, I sometimes identify Candace Owens as a sort of like a skeptic. And I personally think if she knew more, she would probably be an eliminativist um, because some things that, that she says and when she rejects what people on the right call identity politics. Yeah. It strikes me that she would be perfectly satisfied and thrilled to be seen as herself, as a raceless human being, right? As a person who is limitlessness and freed from the strictures of racism. And so I like to talk with my students about that and help them like listen through interviews and stuff like that and mm. um, and parse through like what are her philosophies. And then we could just as easily look at Nicole Hannah-Jones or mm. Ibram X. Kendi or Robin D'Angelo, their interviews, their philosophies of race and find some um, evidence for why eliminativism should be our end goal ultimately, and for how they're also, they've got it wrong. You know, yeah. everyone gets criticized equally <laughs> in, <laughs> in my world yeah. and necessarily, because for me, it's not about politics, it's about freedom from the strictures that racism tries to impose onto all okay. of us. I define racism, so I said this earlier, but probably I should restate it. My definition of racism is that it includes the belief in race and the practice of racialization. So when I say racism, that's what I'm talking about. Our belief in race and our practice of racializing ourselves and other people and allowing people to racialize us, that has detrimental impacts on every single one of us. Yeah. And um, so far, I have yet to come across another thinker such as myself who I just agree 100% with. It doesn't matter what their politics are. Do you, do you, uh, do you, are you familiar with Glenn Lowry or Coleman Hughes? They're, they're two I really yeah. appreciate because I, they're just independent, kind of contrarian, super thoughtful thinkers, which I, I appreciate. If somebody is so tribalistically oriented that they're just end up repeating the same mantra, I know they will never go against their tribe or whatever, left or right. To me, it just becomes really uninteresting to me. But people that you can't really pin down kind of politically, I feel like I'm, I'm just more interested in hearing their ideas because 
they're not just so tribalistically controlled, you know, like, like do you like Coleman and Glenn? Do you feel like they could get on? Well, um, I, so I've had a conversation with Coleman on my own podcast. I love okay. Coleman. I love Glenn. Yeah. Um, haven't had as much success um, getting in touch with him, but I hope to. He's, he's been talking with yeah. friends and people I know in the racist space. Okay. Um, but the, the funny thing for me is I noticed a trend in our society where I feel like a lot of people will identify Glenn Lowry or Coleman mm-hmm. Hughes and others as as heterodox, that's a common term that gets thrown yeah. around, or as yeah. as critical thinkers. But when I consider their work, I still see them as firmly right-leaning. I don't see okay. them. And even, even as I would certainly agree with a lot of their positions, I still see it as a very right-leaning thing. Okay. And I'm not, and that to me is that might be a slur to some people. That's not a bad thing for me. Okay. Right. If you're right-leaning, you're right-leaning, and that it is what it is. And that's cool. I love you too. Right. <laughs> I personally am an independent and I'm an independent for a reason. And I think that actually helps me strengthen my theory because yeah. I expose myself to all of the voices, regardless of what the politics are. And then I make my own per opinions. There are organizations who claim to be nonpartisan in a way that people might identify like Hughes as, as nonpartisan. Um, but to me, I'm like, they're so evidently right leaning. Hmm. And it's a pain point for me because it gives me the impression that a lot of people who who count themselves as uh, political conservatives are in the tribe of thinking that their tribe isn't tribal and thinking that their tribe is <laughs> is they're the critical thinkers and they're the they're the ones who've unlocked the codes to humanity and i think it's ironic because then you come to something like the theory of racistness and no i'm saying you're wrong too right and here <laughs> and here's how and so it's just it's just one of those matrixes where i'm like man i wish i wish more people could talk about that in a generative way, right? And not as a sort of assault on any person because I see value in being able to do that, right? But when a person is so, so sure that Mm -hmm. they are the best type of thinker about anything, then I feel like, I feel like that's where we just run into trouble as a human society, period, because everyone is so sure that their way is the right way. Make no mistake, there are similarities between the left and the right, where you just, I'm just scratching my head as a sort of outsider, and I'm just like, how do y'all not see the similarities? Like, we are way more alike than we are different, period. Yeah. Yeah. But we just firmly believe in what we believe in, and sometimes that's different from what the other believes in. But it's the same coin, just different sides. You know, for better, for better or for worse, I will say. So it's funny because when I started my work, and this has been a strategy actually in African American literary studies, people have dismissed thinkers like George Schuyler, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. because of his conservatism. And when I say dismissed, I mean these people, their writings will go out of print. You, they're not canonized, so you won't even learn about them. Um, only the people that are canonized who agree with racialist ideology in a very particular way get taught and heard about and learned about. And um, 
and you have to really get out of the fishbowl into the ocean to find the George Schuylers mm. or go to a place like Howard where you learn about George Schuyler. Mm. But it's it's interesting to to analyze because one could look at George Schuyler and say, well, it's because of his conservatism that he was marginalized or excluded. And a lot of people have that way of thinking. They say it about soul. They say it about any sort of major conservative figure who is a person racialized as black. Mm -hmm. But by my analysis, it's actually, it's not because of their politics that they're left out of the conversation because Martin Luther King Jr. was conservative. You know, um, there are plenty of other figures who are revered, who are conservative. Frederick Douglass was conservative, but it's because of how he complicated and and disagreed with racialist ideology to my mind that's why he gets mm. that's why he gets outed he doesn't help maintain the status quo and the interconnection between racialization and politics it's so apparent i think probably to to most people listening the connection between politics and racialization it's easy to miss the role of racialization with that marginalization and exclusion as it pertains to how a person thinks about race. And because I feel like I'm talking in the abstract, I'm gonna to try to pin this down. There's a certain sense in which if a person is conservative or leans right, but they agree with race ideology mm -hmm. in some way, in the existence of it. So they're not candy, but they're colorblind or they aspire to be colorblind they don't often get thrown into the dustbins of forgotten history. Their writings will still exist. Maybe they're not the most popular figures, but they, they're still figures, they exist. If that same person speaks out against racism, then despite the fact that, they're, that they checked that, as you said, too binary of a box in terms of po their politics, they're still going to be paid attention to and revered in some circles. At, at, at minimum, they're not going to be dismissed. Mm -hmm. But if the, those same people come out and speak out against the, the strictures around Blackness, race, then all of a sudden it's blasphemy. Like when Coleman Hughes does his blasphemy song, to me, the blasphemy that he's accused of um, of doing or participating in is because he doesn't uphold the mainstream ideas about race, mm -hmm. right? You're, if you believe in race, then you should believe in reparations, for example. This is how people think. And because he doesn't think like that, he's on, on sort of fringes. Because he sort of proudly talks about his economic class status growing up, right? He grew up in the burbs, he says in yeah. blasphemy, some one of my favorite lines. <laughs> and because people have a tendency to have this avatar of a poor, racialized black person, you know, in the hood, and that to them is what it is to be a so-called black person, Hughes is is committing blasphemy because he's not subscribing to the archetype of what black being black is supposed to be and once once you break a certain economic class barrier you're supposed to only talk about that working class avatar you know poor black person in the arts that's how it's been 
And so time and time again, it's the people who speak out against racialization, the results of racialization, regardless of their politics that get mar- that get marginalized. And people have tried to do it to me, though obviously unsuccessfully. They've tried to pin me as a conservative because they hear my ideas about racism. For whatever reason, there's a mental block for them. Mm-hmm. And so the easiest way to dismiss and make a, a person's ideas a sort of non-factor in the mainstream is by saying, oh, they're conservative, yeah, right? Yeah. But really, it's the fact that I'm speaking out against racialization in a way that's different from how they would, how they view it. That's what's getting me dismissed. It's not my politics because I'm not a conservative, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that... <laughs> I, and that's what I absolutely can't stand when people have this binary left, right kind of category and they assume one is righteous and the other is unrighteous. So if you don't line up on this way of thinking on every level, then you must be that category because those are the only two options. And this is where I don't, I mean, you know, Coleman better than I do. I, I, I wouldn't, he doesn't strike me as right leaning. I guess it depends on what we mean by that. I mean, he's what? pro-choice, voted for Biden, pro-universal health care. Like he checks off a lot of classical liberal kind of boxes, I think. Um, but he's just, and he said even from the time he was a kid, he was just a contrarian thinker. And he grew up in a very liberal kind of environment. So he constantly said, well, how do we know that? Like he kept kind of thinking heterodoxally. So because he doesn't line up on the mainstream left, people say, or they assume, well, the only other option is this other horrible tribe over here. And he's like, why can't we just think freely around these issues in a thoughtful way? Um, but I get that's my, I, I just listened to his podcast. So I don't <laughs> um, yeah, I feel but, but, like there's, there's yeah. something I read with his bio and it like indicated that he was right leaning or in some way, but I can't recall what it well, is. He writes so for City Journal, which I believe is a, more conservative outlet i think yeah i don't know but truth be told it just like you said it doesn't matter it that actually doesn't matter to me yeah but i think as you were um kind of explaining it made me think about uh, made me think about something but of course it escaped me so (laughs) well i i just i i love i love 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 the fact that you are maintain um an independent kind of status that you don't get mixed up and i love even you said like oh, this person's right leaning and that's whatever it is it's fine with me like it's not it's, it's let's deal with the issues at hand let's think through them yeah that's that's to me is is the most interesting when well you're an academic too i mean academics are better at this typically <laughs> that you know let's look at the issues at hand wrestle with them thoughtfully and not just rely on some tribal identity to tell us the right answer. You know, to me, that's just so uninteresting, but. um, Yeah, I think, um, you know, before I'm an academic, I'm a human and just the kind of person I am, which is inspired by and informed by a lot of the adversity that I faced. I am a firm believer that everything is possible and that every person is worthy and deserving of unconditional love. Mm. The labels that we attach to ourselves, if we call it identity politics or whatever, the labels that we attach to ourselves are uplifting in some ways and damaging <laughs> and damaging in other words mm. uh, in other ways. And that's the paradox. Um, Anthony Appiah calls it the lies that bind. And he talks about how the different labels, including race, 
um, that we attach to ourselves are paradoxically meant to put certain groupings of people on the fringes or on the margins forever and always. But then, um, and this has happened with race in, in American society, oftentimes what happens is the group that's supposed to be at the bottom of whatever hierarchy embraces the label and uses it in their fight and resistance of the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. In that way, they end up thriving instead of just surviving or instead of being annihilated altogether. So it's this, this tension between being able to recognize that on the other side of whatever label, whether it's politics, whether it's racialization, gender, there is a human being. Mm-hmm. And all of us are so much more complex and nuanced and indeed heterodox than the labels give us credit for. It's something I've been coming into thinking lately is the problem of the term heterodox and this idea that because it makes it seem like not a lot of people have thought in a particular way as it pertains to race specifically. But my study shows me that plenty of people, you know, easily like we could say 50 percent thought this way, 50 percent thought more in this direction in terms of a spectrum. And it's like. The reason why it doesn't seem like that is because these other voices and ways of thinking haven't been able to get into the mainstream. That's it. We haven't been canonized. There's a anthropologist, Montagu Cobb, who wrote over a thousand papers and gave so many lectures, lived a very long life. I think he lived almost to 100. And he he showed the unreality of race throughout his illustrious career and anthropologists don't even learn about it right it's like we are so deep in maintaining the status quo as it pertains to this race thing Mm -hmm. which means we're deep in maintaining racism in ways that we could easily recognize and make a, a different choice i think it's part of the damaging cycle of the sort of changing same that keeps us thinking that when when a voice does appear even if they don't make it into the mainstream, that that complicates our our racialist thinking. We think they're we're supposed to think they're heterodox because we're supposed to think they're kind of a statistical minority, right? A statistical minority of people who who can possibly think in that way, which means they're not a threat to the status quo. But if we actually did a survey of like every person, every voting age person in the U.S., we would come to find that it's way more complicated than that and that more people actually think like that than not. You know what I'm saying? What I'm trying to say, um, but it's like, I think the labeling just prevents us from being able to see that more readily. Mm -hmm. And the labeling keeps us in the quagmire because the mainstream Mm -hmm. and the traditionally accepted ideas about any topic, they, they, really are holding the cards and I'm trying to get into the mainstream. I'm trying to get my ideas into the mainstream because I recognize how crucial that is. You've used the phrase twice now, racialized as black. Is that how you describe yourself? Like if somebody says, Sheena, are you black? Would you say, well, I've been racialized as black? I'm just curious. It's not how I describe myself personally, but when I talk about what people call race and specifically when I talk about racism, to indicate that race isn't of nature, right? 
and that racialization as part of the racism that creates the belief in race. I use the term racialization to describe the the imposition of the category of race okay. onto a human being. So you've mentioned listening to some of my podcasts. I used to say racialized black or racialized white or racialized Asian, but I have pushed my language even further to say something like a person who is racialized as black so that I'm putting the person, the human first, right? Because that to me is the entire premise of the, of the operation. So yeah, I, I, I do that strategically. When I describe myself, I don't talk about racialization or any, or anything like that because I refuse to let racism define me even as I recognize that other people will racialize me. And that's what that, that's what that is. They're going to racialize me. They're going to look at me and they're going to say I'm black. Right. But I don't have to do that too. I don't have to participate. And I can in fact critique and question their racialization of me because I am a human being first and foremost, period. So even the phrase I am why I am black carries probably in your mind, I mean, too much ontological weight or even just ontological right. wrongness, if you will, about That's right. how you understand human nature. Uh, yeah. Sheena, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I took a lot. Of, I usually don't take a ton of notes when I'm doing podcasting because <laughs> I'm too busy talking. But here I took a lot of notes. Um, where can people find your work? I mean, your website, social media stuff. Where can people find out more about who you are? Thank you so much for having me, Preston. It's been a pleasure. I hope this is one of of many conversations. Um, Folks can find me at theoryofracistness.org and all of my social media, podcast publications, everything is there. So that's the sort of hub. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show, Sheena. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.